Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. We find him in the scriptures in 1 Kings chapter 17 through chapter 19. And that's the section of scripture that we're going to be looking at now for several weeks. And what we are going to be doing is looking at his life from the perspective of what was going on in the, in the ninth century in Israel at this time. Elijah, though, was not born a prophet. Elijah was an olive farmer. He was a sheep herder. He was just an average guy. And God turned him into an extraordinary individual. And our series is entitled, Elijah, the Making of an Extraordinary, Ordinary Person, as just like every single one of us. We can all relate to Elijah because none of us were born extraordinary. God does that. We're ordinary. And when God infuses his power and his ability and his grace and his compassion and mercy and his power in us, we become extraordinary. So how did that happen in the life of Elijah? That's what we're going to be looking at. When God wants to use an oak, he does not go to the highlands, he goes to the lowlands. One particular author said, he does not go from the homes of ease, but the lowly walks of simplicity and toil. That's where God finds the people he uses the greatest. In the lowest parts, in the lowest places, not the highest. And that's what's true of the life of Elijah. When we first meet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, he's living in Gilead, which is east of the Jordan. It's part of Israel at the time, but it's not in the main area of Israel. It's not in the predominant, most powerful region. It's kind of on the offskirts. It's on the, in the sidelines, so to speak, in the low mountains, among the olive trees and the sheep. And God comes to Elijah, and he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what is going about to happen. This is God's plan being worked out, very similar to the way you and I find ourselves settling into faith in Christ. At some point in the story, God invites us in. It's like a Robert Ludlum novel. There's twists and there's turns, and the protagonist finds himself halfway through the narrative and has to figure out his purpose and the plan and what to do next. And that's the life of Elijah. In the most believably, I would say the most important moment in the life of Elijah is when Elijah finds out what his purpose is and it's on a mountain in Mount Carmel. And in Mount Carmel, the people gather together from Israel. The people have been under the influence of an evil king that has misled them from their God and mixed in idolatry, which is never a good thing. 
And so the people of God who were called to be God's blessing were given much, now find themselves between two opinions. Various gods, worshiping God himself, but also worshiping the God of their own making. Idolatry. And Elijah calls them to make a decision. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, exactly halfway in the story, he calls the people together and he says this, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, an alternative God, then follow him. Elijah allows the people of God in Israel to make their own decision. If God is God, then follow him. But if your God, your Baal, your false God is God, then follow that God. But make a decision because at this point in your life, you are what the Hebrew scripture is teaching us is you are faltering. The word pasa means to halt, to limp. It means to falter. It's like someone with a limp who favors one side, then favors the other side and is walking, favoring two different sides. And Elijah calls them to no longer falter and limp in their walk, but choose and make a choice. And that's the decision that you and I have to make is which God will we serve and follow? Now, what I love about the life of Elijah story is about his descents and his ascents. He descends into the valleys and ascends up into the mountains. And he, you'll see his life learning to trust God through the descents and ascents of life. And that's the picture of the Christian life that I want to leave you. It's descending and ascending. It's not pure ascending and it's not pure descending. It's living in what I call the middle band of life. The Christian life is best lived in the middle band. And we transition, as I talked about several weeks ago, between uh, uh, earth life-shattering transitions. And we transition all the time. And we descend and then we ascend. We descend and then we ascend. Much like a Mount Everest hiker. And what we've learned about a Mount Everest hiker, if he wants to get to the top, the descent is as important as the ascent. A mountain hiker in high altitude will have to learn how to ascend and quickly descend for acclimation and then descend again and then ascend and then descend again. And the descent is as important as the ascent. And when the hike is finished, what the hiker will discover is he hiked the mountain more than once. The Christian life is about ascending and descending. And we're going to look at these snapshots of Elijah as he descends and ascends through life, through difficulties and hardships, through confusion, but also through great victory. And that's the way we see God working in our lives. So number one snapshot this morning, I'm going to jump right into the text. I'm going to take you right in to, to, to the story. And I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture in first Kings 
The story starts in chapter 17 when God calls him to go to Ahab to remind him that uh, he's been misleading the people and therefore he's bringing a curse on, on Ahab and the nation and there will be a drought for three and a half years. Hoping to bring the people around back to God. That's the story of Elijah. And Elijah during this period of time, this waiting period of three and a half years, needs to hide out because Elijah's pretty angry with him. He's just announced that God is bringing about a drought for three and a half years, and it's going to be deadly, a deadly drought. And so he hides and he goes to a, to a, to a brook and, and God provides for him. And that brook dries up because of the drought. And he's told now to go to another location, which is Zarephath along the sea line, about the seacoast. It's not really even in Israel. He's told, he's told to, to live among people that are not his own. They're Phoenicians. They're Sidonites. They're not even Israelites. And to wait for God to bring the rain. And during this time, Elijah had nothing. And so we discover in 1 Kings chapter 17, God tells him to get up and go to Zarephath, this city, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. There will be a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath and he came and found the gate and there was a widow gathering sticks and he called her and says, please give me a little water and in a jar and that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called her and said, please give me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm getting ready to prepare a fire, bake the bread for my son and myself that we may eat and then die. Talk about destitute. God calls Elijah to go to a city that is not his own and meet a woman who has nothing who will provide for him. Well, that sounds rather counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't look like a very good setup for a three and a half year stay. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall be exhausted shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Thus saith the Lord. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was exa never exhausted, nor was the jar of oil ever became empty, according to the word of the Lord, which she spoke through Elijah. What I want to talk about this morning is the very first snapshot that we see in the life of Elijah. And he meets a widow who has nothing and God provides everything. And we learn a very, very important lesson in following God. God is the one who supplies everything we need, not us. It's transitioning from a mentality of scarcity to a mentality of generosity. And he uses a woman who's not even an Israelite, 
She's not even a follower of God. She's a, she's a Phoenician, a descendant of the Phoenicians that believes in another God, another religion to teach us as learners of the text that when God wants to do his best work, he has to get us to the point where we are most dependent on him. And then he does his greatest work. We are in that kind of a year right now. And the reason why I chose this passage this morning to begin our series on Elijah is because we have just received news of budget as we finish up year 2022 and now head into 2023. We are in our 16th year as a church. For 15 years, there have been only two years that we have come under budget. Our giving was less than we, what we actually spent, and it was within twenty dollars to $30,000, not much. Every other year as a church, we have exceeded in giving more than our actual budget. And therefore, God has allowed us to have a surplus. And we have held on to that surplus for 15 years as a church, and it's significant. This year was different. Our budget was 1.279. We brought in 1.369. We are $368,000 short of our budget. That is significant. I think the lights went off and God was saying, I want something different in your church. I am not worried. We are not panicked as a staff or a finance team or a council of leaders that guides our church. But we are listening with attentively to God who is speaking to us in this moment. That is a 20% decrease. Why, Lord? You have provided every year through the abundance of an amazingly faithful congregation. What is going on? And the only thing I can think of is this is the place where God does his greatest work. When we are most dependent on him. God needed to get us to this point in order for us to wake up and say, are we really serious about trusting God with this church and the mission that this church has, which is to reach this community for Christ? And are we gonna wake up to that or are we gonna sit with a sense of confidence in our surplus? Or is God gonna drain the surplus in order to make us more dependent? God does much better work when we are far more desperate. And that is true in all of our lives. You can take that to the bank. And so that's where we begin this year. And I think what we discover in all of this is this is not a plea for money. It's not. You cannot persuade people to give. Mature people give. When you grow and mature in your faith, you give. 
You do not give out a persuasion. It, we don't do campaigns because then you got to do another one next year. You give because it's the conviction of your life. And you have to come to that conviction, which means you need to grow. This is the year of maturity. This is the year of group spiritual maturity for the, for the life of the River Church. Year 16 will be the year that we focus on growing spiritually in all areas of our life. We're going to start taking God far more seriously. Not that we haven't in the past, not that we haven't done a great and faithful job with this, with the resources that we have. We have an amazing church. We've got an incredible staff. We don't have a big budget, you guys. We really don't. This is not a $20 million budget. This isn't a $100 million. There are churches with $100 million budgets. We have a $1.7 million budget. Not very hard to reach $1.7 million dollars in a community like this. But it must come through mature belief. And that's what we're gonna focus on. So here's snapshot lesson number one. God wants to transform a heart of scarcity to a heart of generosity. And we learn that from the widow who had nothing and out of her nothingness, she gave everything and God gave her more than she asked for. And that's what giving is all about. And that's what God wants to do in your life. God doesn't want your resources to deplete you. He wants your resources so that he can complete you. And you must come to the understanding of that. That the completion that God wants in your life comes through not only your time in God's word, not only time in prayer, not only time when you are faithful to share the good news of Christ to somebody else, but when you give. Giving is as significant as reading God's word in the development of your spiritual maturity. And maybe that's the first time you have ever heard that before. Maybe that's the first time you've ever been exposed to the truth that giving of your resources and your finances and your money and the things that you have is a, is a direct correlation to your belief that God owns your life, that, you're, that you believe that Christ is the Lord of your life. And so I want to challenge you this morning with three ideas that come out of the life of the widow. Elijah, we can look at Elijah, but we're going to look at Elijah for over a couple months here. And from Elijah's perspective, he walks into a desperate situation. And that's what God wanted for him, to walk into a desperate situation and have nothing and rely on, upon somebody else who had, who had nothing so that God would do his best work. From, from the widow's perspective, she gave generously and more was given. We could literally write that underneath the life of the widow. She gave generously and more came from her out of her life. So here's the three things that I want you to walk away with this morning. Number one, just from the text. Number one, more is not better. And we learned that. So this woman has nothing. She's gathering sticks. She's going to light a fire, make her last loaf of bread, 
give it to her son and herself. She's already lost her husband. There's a middle of a drought. She's going to eat that bread, and she says she's going to die. From her perspective, more is better. Right? She, she, from her perspective, she needs more. She doesn't have enough. She's literally going to die. The problem with the woman in this situation is her perspective. She had the wrong perspective. And I'll give you, I'll give you several reasons why. Number one. She doesn't believe that God will supply all her needs in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. That's what, that's what Paul reminds the church. God's going to supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. If you believe that, more is not better. It's a change in perspective. And when Paul refers to that, he's actually referring to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount in verse 25 to 33, where he says, don't worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. God will provide all that you need. That's what Jesus said. Therefore, quit worrying about it. What does he say? Why are you worrying about tomorrow when it's today? That's perspective, right? If we focus on tomorrow, we don't have enough. If we focus on today, we have enough. It's a matter of perspective. And what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples in that Matthew 6 passage is don't worry about tomorrow. Financial planning is a very good thing. Saving is a very good thing. We are not called on by God, by God, to use up all of our resources in one day. He's just simply saying, I've given you enough for the day. Now, we could tail off on a little trail and talk about when God doesn't provide enough and somebody starves to death. I'm going to hold that for later. In fact, Charles Templeton was a great evangelist that was side by side with Billy Graham uh, and had probably one of um, the most successful evangelistic careers along with Billy Graham many, many years ago, yet he could not reconcile a God that would not provide for everybody. And when he saw on the cover of a Life magazine an African woman holding a, a starving child that had just died, he decided at that point in his life, God was no longer good. And in 1986, he wrote a book about abandoning God, walking away from God, why I have left God. The problem is he's only seen it from one perspective. From a human side, yes, it looks really bad. But we have to also remember what's going on in the world today in terms of the evil influence of whether it's governments or individuals or organizations. We have enough food. It's just not getting distributed because why? Because of God or because of choices? Think about it. So number one, the woman did not understand that there was an all-powerful God who doesn't want us to focus on tomorrow but today. And to change your perspective and to say, I have enough today is to say, I trust you, God, with tomorrow. And that's the kind of mentality a Christian needs to leave, live by. But the second reason is that God does not put, um, put us on a barren desert. 
God gave us a lush garden. We have created the scarcity that has existed in the world today, not God. The third thing I want to say is we have to learn to focus on what we have, not on what you don't have. The widow focused on the wrong thing. She saw the loaf of bread. She focused on the fact that they were both hungry and realized that tomorrow would be a different day and they were going to die. Rather than on what she actually did have. She had a meal for the day and she didn't realize that a man of God has just walked into her life. She didn't know that. She had no idea. Elijah just walked into her life. And to have Elijah walk into your life is to bring the power and the presence of God into this person's life. He walks right into an enemy community that did not believe in God. And Elijah is going to change things. The fourth thing is hardship produces greater dependence. Hardship produces greater dependence. There's a second thing that we learn as we transition from scarcity to generosity. More is not better. But our world will tell you that. And we will somehow focus on that as opposed to having the mind of Jesus regarding what we have and what God has provided us. The second thing is the key to true happiness is generosity. You will never be a happy person until you are a generous person. Bottom line, won't happen ever you will struggle with your happiness and your contentment for the rest of your life if you remain in a mentality of scarcity. I only have enough for myself. I need to hold it back. The widow gave what she could not afford to lose to get what she could not afford to earn. Where do I get that from? The woman gives the loaf of bread and all of a sudden more bread appears and more bread. This is the story in the gospels. Twice we have Jesus multiplying food for the multitudes. God can provide. We just have to trust him. But we got to give something up. And as the disciples walked out with fish and loaves, they had to release, they had to give them out in order for more to come into the basket. And in order for us to experience the blessings of God, the rewards of giving, you have to give out of generosity to see God do what he's going to do in the next moment. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, early in our church, I felt, Denise and I both felt, as we got to the end of the year and we gave all that we had planned to give, that I would write another check. So I wrote this check. It was a big check. It was way more than what we had planned to give. And we gave it to the church. If we ask other people to give, we need to lead in that. We need to believe that in our own lives as a family. And we have. Back in... 1983, when I joined a commercial real estate company, uh, 
I sat down with the Lord and I made a deal. Lord, you bring in the commissions, I'll give you the checks. Certainly, I will take enough to live on, but I began at 10%, a tithe, Malachi 3.10, bring into the storehouse the whole tithes of God. God calls us to tithe 10% at a bare minimum. Malachi 3.10, I don't know what else to do with that. You may not be there yet. You may be struggling with that. That may be a lot of information for you in this moment. Well, think about it. Pray about it. Test the Lord, it says in Malachi 3. Test him in this area. Try it. So what I did in commercial real estate, and I'll get back to the other story. Now I've got two stories going, um, but I'll finish this up. Um, so back to, back to real estate. So I started at 10%. But Lord, if you bring me a $5,000 check versus a $2,000 check, I'll give you 12%. And if you give me a $15,000 check, I'll give you 15%. And if you give me an over $30,000 check, I'll give you 20%. And if it's 50,000, I'll give you 40. And if it's 100, I'll split it with you. I'm, I'm serious. And I wrote it out and I put it in an envelope. I put it in a folder. And every time I got a commission check, that folder got open. I looked at my commission check. I went, okay, it's 7,000. It's 10,000. It's 12,000. I went over and looked at the percentage that I was getting, Lord. I took that money, put it into a separate checking account that I called the, my tithing checking account. I opened up another account. It was just tithing money. And I wrote the, the check and it went into that other account. Two years after I retired in real estate and went into full-time ministry and begun my graduate, um, graduate training. So I'm paying for a graduate degree, two graduate degrees, a master's in divinity and a master's in theology at, Bio, at Talbot School of Theology. And I'm paying for it out of my savings. We live in a house that we just bought as we were a newlywed couple in Hermosa Beach. And I had a mortgage and I had no job and no income. And that tithing check account had money in it for over three years. I cannot explain to you what happened. Another story. I wrote that check early in the life of the church. Here's what happened. We went off to a conference up in Santa Barbara. Denise got a phone call from her uncle. Her father had passed away from cancer. Her mother decided when she died, her grandmother decided, her father's mother, that because Denny had passed away, she was going to give all of her estate to her uh, uh, living son, Uncle Carol. Uncle Carol didn't feel that was right. So Uncle Carol called all three of Denny's siblings, my wife being one of them, and said, I'm going to write you a check out of all the money that your grandmother has given me. It was 10 times what I had just tithed. Malachi 3.10 says, test God in this one area of your life, and I will show you what I can do. It's not always going to be money. In fact, the rest of the story in verse 9, oh, excuse me, verse 17, all the way down to verse 24, the son of the widow gets sick and dies. Elijah 
prays to God, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's life return to him. In verse 22, he takes the child up to an upper room, lays flat, lays on the child as if to transfer his life to the life of the child after that prayer. And the child comes to life, brings the son back down to the woman and says, here he is. He is alive. And then the woman says to Elijah, now I know that you are the man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your truth. The woman gave up a loaf of bread and got life for her son. There's the text. You tell me, does God not return what we give to him tenfold? 50 fold, 100 fold. You can't put a price tag on what this woman got by giving up everything she had. You draw the conclusion. The key to true happiness is generosity. Three myths. Three myths that keep us unhappy in life. Number one, I can't afford 10%. And I would argue you can't afford not to give 10%. Look at the woman. Do you think that woman could not afford to give what she gave? She would have given more to get what she got. That's the way God works in the Bible. Through giving. Second myth. I can't live on 90%. If I give 10%, I can't live on 90%. Can't do it. If God expects 10% of your wages, he will make a way for you to live on 90%. And I have seen that over and over and over again. God will make it a way. Well, I can't afford it. I can't live on 90%. You can. Well, here's a third one. I'm in debt. And I would argue give in order to get out of debt. God will take care of the plan and work as you work a plan. You got to have a plan to get out of debt. So you call the credit card companies, you work out a plan, you work off a payment schedule, and then you start giving and you give as, as much as you can and you watch what God does. Just try it once. Just try. I, here's the challenge. It's not because we are $368,000 short of our budget. It just brought us to a point where God brought a conviction in my heart to tell you about it because this is where God wants us. It's a good place to be dependent on the Lord and try it. Just try it. See what God does. If he doesn't pull through, then, then you make your own decisions. It's not my life. It's your life. It's your faith. It's your development. It's your maturity, not mine. We're just here to help guide and encourage you in the right steps. What I have learned about financial plan, you could ask George Andrews, my son-in-law, Francois, Dominic. There's, we've got financial planners in our church. It's not about amassing wealth. It's about growing your giving. When you have a Christian perspective of financial planning, you grow to give. You do not grow to keep. Number three and finally, 
There comes a time to choose to release the temporal to get the eternal. And here's the last thing. In 1 Kings chapter 17, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In other words, the widow turned her life over to God. She gave up something temporal to get something eternal. A conversion has to happen to bring about a conviction that will change your life. So Father, as we close this morning and we head to the communion table, we know ultimately we could never outgive you because you sent your son. And when we go to this table and we take of the bread and we take of the juice and we receive it, we are remembering the fact that you outgave us. We could never, ever outgive you. You have given your son, Jesus, for us. He has gone to the cross. And maybe for many of us that are listening for the very first time and are challenged with these words, the first thing we hear is what the widow says last. Now I know, Elijah, you are a man of God and that your word is true, O Lord. The conversion of of the heart brings about a conviction that will change my life. And maybe for the very first time, I am not only converting now to God, my soul, but also all my resources. I'm giving them to you. Will you guide me? Will you help me? Will you comfort me? Will you show compassion as I take a step? Maybe a small step. Maybe I've just... You have just heard a message and it's way more than I could possibly bite off at this point. But I'm willing to take the next step. What is the next step for you? Lord, would you bring that about and change our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, thanks for being with us this morning. You are welcome during this time to go forward and to receive the communion. As you go, remember that God has outgiven you already. He has given us his son. Thanks for being with us.